the British Empire and the French Republic, linked together in their cause and in their need, will defend to the death their native soil, aiding each other like good comrades to the utmost of their strength. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. GlobalRecon.net, giving you the matter of facts. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I'm out with Chantel Taylor, British Army combat medic and author of the book, Battle One. Chantel, what's up? Hey, how's it going, John? It's good. Everything is good. How's everything? Yeah, it's been an interesting week. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. I uh, So the guest who was on for this week's episode is Foxy. Uh, Foxy is, he's pretty well known in the UK. Um, he's a former uh, British Special Boat Service operator, which is their, which is the British equivalent of SEAL Team 6, is their counterterrorism uh, naval unit. And uh, Foxy was in the Marines for 20 years, the British Royal Marines for 20 years, and then half of that time was spent uh, in the SBS uh, as a Special Forces operator. And you and Foxy actually know each other, which is uh, interesting. Can you talk about that? Yeah, a bit? yeah, we do. Uh, it was quite. We've known each other for over for a couple of reasons, I guess. Um, initially, I met Foxy when we were filming the first the first season of the SAS Who Dares Wins um, sort of reality show, and I covered the the kind of no duff medic the, that sort of side of it. So. You know, the, the tide when they did the sort of outdoor activities, including the fan dance and all the, those types of things, I would um, position myself um, to obviously deal with any casualties that were actually happening. That um, we had a little team of us, so, and that's when I first met Foxy, and I didn't realise um, it's interesting actually because on my final tour of Afghan, uh, we had two JTACs attached to our um, fighting company, and they were both special boat service and um one of them andy was the following year i mean he was this guy was outstanding and it, and at some points so i didn't cover too much on him in my book because obviously at that time you know you can't you don't write about um 
SF guys on the ground. And unfortunately, the year later, Andy was killed. In the, I mean, it was a really, a really successful raid, I believe. And again, it wasn't. It's not overwhelmingly kind of documented, but by all accounts, he was a, a, a super, a super operator. And just from my own experience of him, he, you know, many of the guys that I'd worked with, the, you know, the young infantry soldiers, would they kind of patrolled harder because of him, because he would not hesitate in dropping munitions. And there was even an incident, I think it was covered in another book called Code Black. And I, do you know, I remember I was in the ops room when this happened. And when I say ops room, this is in our patrol base. So it was all kind of, the ops room kind of um, was right next door to the RAP and stuff like that. And Andy came in and the, our brigade commander's call sign came up on the net. And it was like, shit, that's quite a big deal for that to happen because of the amount of munitions being dropped. But bearing in mind at that time in Nadi Ali, you know, we were we were on a kind of a mission that developed extremely quickly. And he would just he was the guy on the ground, and that's exactly what he said. You know, I'm the guy on the ground, so I make the decision. So all of a sudden you've got all these grunts have got this major crush on this JTAC because he was whenever they were in trouble, he'd get he'd get them out of it really you know, so when you think about those things, and I spoke to Foxy about this, I said, you know, it's, it's strange because I think the military community, you, you're all, it's, you know, you you all know somebody and it, it kind of links everyone in. And and when I found that out, I said to Foxy, I said, it's, you know, when he was killed that year later, because of the way tours move and people just go off, they get flown out, someone new gets flown in. You know, no one really had the time to tell him how how grateful they were. You know, and I can say as the as the company medic that he he saved an awful lot of soldiers from getting killed. So if that's his legacy and potentially you can talk about it now that he's gone, then I I don't think there's any shame in that because yeah they they sign up to, to this kind of this agreement and of course as they should. But um, yeah, Andy deserves to be spoken about. So he was a you know a little bit of a legend um, in the the infantry fighting company that I'd served with. So. And, and obviously that was one of the things that had affected Foxy quite badly when um, when he had that chronic sort of fatigue and ended up having to leave. So, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, I think obviously for that community, the British uh, Special Forces community, and then, of course, here in the States and any kind of uh, Western nation where they have their uh, counterterrorism operators, you know, deploying and fighting, you know, the, a large part, portion of, or, or if not all of what they do is pretty much kept secret and for good reason. But for certain units at times, it there is some positive in, in uh, being able to talk about, you know, some of their, their fallen uh, brothers and that kind of thing. And just to set us, you know, even if it's just a little bit of light on uh, yeah, some of the work sure. that they do, you know, uh, in and ma- at the same time maintaining that uh, operational security, that personal security kind of thing, you know. Yeah, and even when you hear like, it's good to hear things that have potentially gone in the past, so long as you don't start um, giving too much away. But you know, right. there are, I think, a lot of things are open source anyway nowadays because the. The training doesn't. The training, I'm sure, like it develops, but the the ethos and stuff obviously stays the same from when, you know, the days of um, the sort of forefathers. You know, so that's that's where it all comes from. So and, and definitely, I think that people, especially the fallen, it's, it's great that they're honoured and it's great to hear about them because, 
like like I said, he um, he had a massive influence on on the battle space in our area for sure. And and then you could even go to the realms of saying if if he hadn't have been there and had the attitude that he did, you know, who who knows what would have happened? You know, if 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 you have someone there that that doesn't have that attitude and that kind of kind of does what they're told and I don't like to say that like but they kind of just fit in this little box and do then you know a whole world of pain could have uh, could have come down on the blokes that were patrolling so yeah I'm I'm certainly grateful to have had him for the time that we did yeah and I, I actually it's interesting because when you think of British special forces at least as an American immediately you think of the SAS right they're kind yeah. of you know the very famous legendary unit even though the SBS has been around uh for the same period of time and um you know they fought in World War II as well but I remember reading a book by um a retired uh Delta Force Major Dalton Fury uh, who who passed uh, away yeah, yeah. Uh, last year and he was the ground commander when they were going after Bin Laden in Tora Bora in 2001 and in his book, he was talking about how it, there was a um, a few Army Special Forces teams there, uh, Green Berets. Yeah. There were some CIA teams there. Delta was there. And then he said the, the British had sent uh, SBS commandos. And I remember reading that. I'm like, who the fuck are SBS commandos? <laughs> Is that what you said? Who the fuck? That's exactly what I said. And... Um, <laughs> And then I did some little bit of research on it, and I'm like, wow, this is pretty interesting. And I got this book written by this guy. Uh, he was in, I believe, in the 70s, uh, mid-70s. He, he got in the mid-70s or late 70s and, and served through, I believe, the 90s. Yeah. And um, it was just kind of like eye-opening to to learn about this, this unit that is, um, you know, a tier one unit, but it's not the SAS, you know what I mean? Yeah. I suppose that then, you know, the way it is now, they, they all do the same initial selection and then they obviously go off and do what classes their their areas of expertise. But um, in the way that the world is, I think that both have equal roles in the world, don't they? They have the right. different, they go off and do their different things, but the goal at the end is the same, isn't it? So, and they, I don't think, yeah, there's not a great deal of literature on the on the SBS, is there? No, there really isn't. I mean, just yeah. a small handful of uh, books, you know. But, um, but I, I guess that's good. You yeah, know, for the unit. You know what I mean? Yeah, and even the stuff that's out, the literature that's out on on the special air service, it's still it's still limited, and that's that's no bad thing. Right, and and what's actually interesting about the special, I mean, I guess UK special forces in general is from the last fifteen years, there isn't much of any literature out, kind of. No. Um, I mean, you have some stuff that was written by journalists kind of documenting. Um... But I think that's the rule, John, actually. I'm sure that you can never confirm. Because I had that when my, my book went through MOD clearance and any sign of, you know, because they, well, they can't sort of confirm that they're either operating here or there. And I think that's the rule. I don't, you know, I don't, don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure that there's a rule that you can't say, you know, you could basically see five dudes and think you know but you can't actually confirm that that's them i'm not too sure that that's that no, just must be the way it is yeah no it might be because there, there's really not much about what they've been up to you know um, yeah and, and like i said that's a good thing but um you know aside from that there's there has been a lot going on this week 
Yeah, well, and and it sort of lends itself. So Afghanistan, if right. you stay on that subject, the the old Moab. Yeah, and um, <laughs> so basically, the Moab is the the largest. The, the bomb that non-nuclear, has the most, isn't it? Yeah, right. It has the most destructive power. Yeah, outside of a nuclear bomb in the U.S. arsenal, and I believe it was the first time it was ever used. And they, uh, a Green Beret was killed in the same area that they dropped the bomb a few days before it happened. And apparently, ISIS fighters were using this uh, cave, and they had like this tunnel network, and they were kind of uh, filtering in and out through these tunnels and. What they ended up doing was dropping the Moab directly on the mountain. And initially they said like 35 guys were killed, 35 ISIS fighters were killed. And then the numbers went up to like north of 100. And yeah. uh, so it, it really dealt them a blow and I would imagine a, a psychological blow as well. And it has. You know, I'd spent two years in um, Nagahar province after um, my military service and it, in Jabad actually. And... Um, that's a, a real sort of a place that the Taliban, you know, they often use it as their main thoroughfare in and out of Pakistan. And also I think they use that as a little bit of a holiday destination. Clearly, if they were using that area as a holiday destination, that potentially got a little bit dark. Right. Um, yeah, last week. But that's the thing. And, and you do need to you need to make a dent in their, in their morale too because, I do, again, I, I speak about that. I spoke about um, Afghanistan in our our us pulling out the Brits and and obviously it was sort of a bit misconstrued but my point initially was is that if you leave a vacuum it's going to be filled and all of these places and you've got Afghanistan you've got all these places in Africa you know Somalia Mali Algeria um, Libya they all become vacuums and sort of havens for people to either regroup and then you know um, launch assaults in all, in all these different areas so it's good I think it's a positive move. And I, I, I see that um, Karzai came out today and condemned it. I mean, he came, you know, it was all very poetic. Yeah. But I, I think, well. I, I think Karzai is a smart guy, but I think, yeah. um, you know, there is a bit of politics that he plays uh, yeah. in, in kind of serving in his own interest. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's, it is always, it's, it's very self-serving. And that's where you right. kind of lose. So any sincerity it kind of get it's diminished because you then you just think, well, hang on. It's, just, it's so random that he came out and, and he, there's nothing sort of concrete. There's no facts behind it. It's just um, thoughts and feelings as opposed to actually backing it up with facts. And I, I don't think he was overly helpful during, um, you know, certain times, especially times that I've been in Afghanistan on, on a different sort of level. So, Right, right. Because, you know, there's, you know, obviously in war there are issues with um, – civilians getting killed or uh you know civilians claiming they were mistreated on on raids or you know that kind of thing but yeah um i think I, this one was i mean this has been classed as quite a big, big success on that level where they weren't oh yeah absolutely yeah there, yeah there hasn't from what i understand there hasn't been any reported civilian casualties and, and i think part of that is because it was in a cave complex you know a, yeah like a bit away from everything but um I mean, I know a guy uh, by the name of Justin Charters who he uh, he puts out a lot of articles and does a lot of great work at the Independent Journal Review. They're like an online yeah. publication. And he was interviewing people who were in the area at the time the bomb was dropped. And 
basically from his articles, what you come to understand is that ISIS has kind of been stepping on these people's necks for a while now. Yeah. And they're kind of happy that um, they're kind of getting the screws put to them, you know? Yeah, because that's the thing with these groups. It's not like um, when we talk about civilian casualties, you know, these these groups don't treat the local populace very good at all. You know, there's not uh, it's not a time to be, um, you know, you, you don't want to be around those groups. It's not it's not a good way to live. And and, of, and looking uh, down south where we've had um, places like Sangin have fallen back into the, the hands of the Taliban, it's not a good that's not a good deal for the local people. Yeah, and it's it's kind of interesting because any instances that are, are documented where some sort of uh, terror group or, you know, very right-wing kind of jihadi type of ideological yeah. group, anytime that they are governing someplace versus trying to, you know, be rebels and fight the government or whatever it is, they fail miserably because they follow... The, the rules that they follow are so strict and like yeah. literally, you know, rules that are hundreds of years old, thousands of years old that really just don't fit in today's world with most people, you know? Yeah, so and it, eventually and the people are going to turn against that kind of uh, constriction, you know? Yeah, definitely. Or they'll start, you know, testing their own produce, which is probably what happens in Afghanistan a lot. Yeah. You know, that's why they hope that almost the entire country are high. You know, it's not a good... Under the rule of the Taliban, it's not a great place to be, is it? Or ISIS, you know, or groups in and around those. Right, because it's all, I mean, you know, they, they might have different names or something, but... Yeah, a, a lot they're of these all the same, the same, much yeah. of a muchness, aren't they? Yeah. And then, and I've also looked, um, you know, been doing a bit of research this week on the old North Korea um, incident, you know, what's, um, how's that look in your end, John? Oh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, the US sent a... A fleet uh, to the Korean Peninsula, and then the yeah. Japanese Navy sent some ships along with it. Now, apparently, uh, the R- Russian and Chinese like intelligence gathering ships are ch- are tailing them, like tracking their movements. And uh, Mike Pence, the uh, VP of the United States, Vice President, yeah. he was he took an unattrip- unannounced trip to the DMZ the the yeah. border between North Korea and South Korea and he um kind of broke security protocol and was i guess either talking from a a point that he sh- they didn't want him to be at or he he just m- walked up to this point where he was like less than 100 feet from North Korean soldiers yeah and basically uh he said something to the effect of we want to uh resolve this peacefully and diplomatically but at the same time, he kind of said, "Like we're ready," uh, yeah. in a sense. So, and, and that's it's almost there's an an awful lot of posturing going on. You know, I'd, oh, I yeah. read it. I don't yeah. know how true it is, but they the, had the um, the vice foreign minister of um, North Korea saying that. The, and this is the strangest thing. So he was talking. He said, "If the U.S. reacted, then North Korea would take a preemptive strike." Now, and I don't know if I'm wrong, but in my head, preemptive means it's before, surely. Yeah, yeah, but that was the word, and I thought, well, but you know, that kind of moved on. But there's there's posturing from everybody, and I almost feel like everyone wants to have their little say. No, I'll just chime in. I'm going to pipe up and maybe send, maybe I'll send a ship. You know, it's, and then you've got so the Russians, the Chinese, and the Japanese are all condemning it, 
but then they almost want to get involved so they don't look weak and right like, and well, I, I think the the best course of action would be to resolve it diplomatically because yeah for sure yeah I mean, you know people and you see it on social media you know uh you know everyone's talking tough like yeah you know fuck them and this and that <laughs> but at the end of the day if war breaks out with a country like north korea it's not going to be no like Iraq not, or yeah. afghanistan it's going to be like attrition you know like yeah thousands and thousands of thousands it, of people it's, it's, it's almost like that who doesn't mind and they say this that war of attrition is who doesn't mind like so almost um regardless of how many you kill we'll keep going exactly you, it's that kind of hideous right and that then then you're talking in the hundreds of thousands that's not just i'm not an you know, at the moment, every every obviously clearly every soldier counts, but when you look at those numbers, it's like, well, hang on. Yeah, it's not even close. Yeah, the mean, world. Yeah, the world doesn't need to see that again. Exactly. I mean, Iraq and Afghanistan, a lot of people died, but in comparison, I mean, like to the Great Wars. Yeah, yeah. not even close. I mean, it, you know, twenty thousand people died uh, in a couple of days' time after they took. Uh, the beaches at Normandy. Yeah, you know what I mean, I mean like, yeah, the, well, the, the morning of the Battle of the Somme, I think it was that's definitely into double figures, if not in the in potentially around twenty nine, thirty thousand. Yeah, and this is just, and that's in one morning. Yeah, right, and and there were several instances of these type of uh, yeah numbers of people being killed, and and that is a whole another level of warfare. Yeah, then that's um, yeah, and that's when countries start, that's not. But having said that, you know. North Korea, the, the sanctions haven't just been made by the U.S. You know, there's, there's been a sort of outcry by the useful U.N. You know, but the, so that it's not a case of the North Korea against the U.S. They're kind of making it a bit like that, I feel. And this isn't from a U.S. perspective. This is, I feel like North Korea is saying to America, no. But it's, it's not just the Americans saying, stop with the missile testing. Right. I mean, even but, um, from what I understand, yeah, China, China, some yeah, they has... did exactly the same. And the, and the only people that they're sort of concentrating their efforts or they're kind of gobbing off if you like is that the americans so it's it's provoke um, a lot of um sort of provoking a reaction or let's see how far we can push but this that's not the stuff to be kind of provoking is it right. nuclear bombs you know yeah exactly because at the end of the day if a war does break out obviously you know they can say whatever they want but the American military is a, a tremendous yeah. force in the world. And, and it will defend itself. You know, it's not going to say, hell, okay, we'll see if you, how your targets go. I did. I was looking, interestingly, at the scope of the, um, the ranges of their missiles. And I've seen, I don't know whether I was correct in seeing that in Mr. UK. Is that, is that a good thing that was so small, John? <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> that, you know, we picked, we picked the island for a reason. Yeah, exactly. Because there's, there's, far, there's far larger targets around us. Oh yeah, for sure. And um, and while you know, while all this is going on, actually, Europe's been rather quiet, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, and the well, only the only thing that I've seen in the news are the um they're now saying that the concentration camps are now becoming execution camps for homosexuals in Chechnya. In Chechnya, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I know, that, but it's it's almost like I, it's quite hard to believe that that's just you know. It's it's in the news, and it's almost because of the way we are now with social media. People will, will just ride past that um, article because there'll be something more interesting. Oh, all right, so homosexuals are being um, murdered in Chechnya. Well, what's you know? Right, that's, it's just like swipe, it's kind of swipe down. What's the next? Yeah, thing, right? what's what's next? Yeah, yeah. So that's nuts. But then I did see a, it was kind of a, it was a lovely story, but very sad as well. Is that the oldest person in the world died this week? 
Oh yeah, I saw that. Yeah, she yeah, was like the, the last Italian lady who was born in the 1800s or something. Yeah, like that. yeah. in the 18th century. Yeah, the Italian lady. So I thought it was 117. Yeah, that's old. I mean, she lived that's, through yeah. like a huge transformation yeah. in the world. You know. Yeah, and I thought that's quite extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Anything else? Oh, I did see that Trump. I don't want to mention the news uh, thing, but he's now got his own um, subcategory. On <laughs> you know, yeah. like you've got like BBC Sky, and so you have this like the subcategory. So you have like UK News World, and then you've got Trump now. <laughs> so he's got his own subtitle. Oh yeah, I mean he's people are talking everything he does. I know. I mean, he's a president, but everything he does is like talked about. You know, yeah, tremendously. But yeah, so he's. <laughs> I just thought it was quite comical. So. Um, but he's and I see Russia came out and said that there's a, a new level of mistrust um, with the the US after the the strikes in Syria. Oh yeah, I mean just for Russia's information, nobody trusts the Russians either way. So. Yeah, I know, and and it's been that's been going on for quite a few years now. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like, <laughs> oh, we didn't lose much trust. <laughs> what the fuck? So um, and then also I, I just saw caught this today, and I don't know how old it is, but I saw that the um and this is from the UK, is that there were members, members of parliament calling for Assad's wife to have her British citizenship oh, yeah. removed. Yeah. And do you know what? That's all well and good. But, you know, I didn't hear the same outcry with um, regards to, like, hate preachers of, of any, you know, terror group. Yeah. So, you know, so if it, it's, it's almost like continuity. You know, it's, it's either what's good for one is good for everybody. You can't just sort of pick and choose right, who you yeah, decide no, that exactly. that happens on, you know? Yeah. And there's a little bit that pissed me off a bit today because I thought, well, it's taken years to get people either thrown out of the country for their support of terror, you know, and direct support of terror, and then, but you can still sort of preach hate wherever you like, right, as long like, as you're not Assad's wife. Yeah, exactly. Like, like that is kind of bullshit. I'm, I mean, yeah. I'm sure she has no freaking... And she wasn't pre... I mean, she was... Obviously, she's in support of her husband, and it's not to say whether he's a great... Whatever he is, but that's her... That's his wife at the end of the day. You know, you can't... Right. Would you think more of her if she just sort of upsticks and said, yeah, cheers, I'm off? Yeah, exactly. Because and- even for the stuff that he's done, he's still buying... He's, he's Western educated. He's not a... Do you see what I'm saying? It's almost like one rule for one. And I, I don't really buy into that. I think it makes us look weak, actually. Well, yeah. I mean, look, if you, if you remove the Assad regime, there is not, you know, who, who are the moderates? I mean, there's, there's yeah. moderate is very subjective in that region. I mean, who, you know. And moderates can very quickly turn into non-moderates, you know, yeah, and we've and seen that happen. We've seen that happen over and over again since the end of the Second World War. So, yeah. I, I think, so you know, as, you know, maybe the guy has done some bad things, but to, like my personal opinion, I think we're better off leaving someone like that in power because who knows what the next group is going to look like, you know what I mean? Yeah. And then, the, you know, we've had then Turkey. I mean, I don't, this, this has been a busy week. So yeah. he's just, um, he's what, got another how many years? Quite a few years, I think, in power. Yeah, a couple of years. He he just won some kind of referendum where yeah. he expands his powers there. I mean, I don't know. Obviously, that would have all been above board and kosher. Kosher counting, yeah. wouldn't it? <laughs> I mean, you couldn't, do you know what? The stuff that's been going on this last couple, of, you couldn't you couldn't write it in a script, could you? Yeah, it is crazy. You, I mean, I, I yeah. just, so I just got an alert on my phone that says, 
from Fox News, uh, U.S. missile system en route to Korean Peninsula. Like, there you go. Like, they're just escalating it. Uh, yeah. No good. And then it, when it becomes like a, depending on who it is, if you, if you think, you know, we all like to think that we ha- we're grounded and we have this, um, you know, we want the best for everybody. But then you look at the leader of North Korea, and I don't really see that in him. You know, you don't see... Because he's so sheltered from every from the world, and he's kind of in this own his own kind of right. And, and but way, you, God knows what's going on in his head, and you could see almost like a petulant child just saying yeah, and doing something quite weird. Well, yeah, and the um, part of the problem of being so isolated, like yeah. they are, is that again, you know, perhaps he has a completely different view of how things actually are, or he knows. And maybe we're the ass clowns, John. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe people in Korea <laughs> yeah. are like, what the fuck are these idiots talking about? But, um, <laughs> it's all relative, and it's true, isn't it? Because no, you would think that if, you, if you're looking out, you're not looking in, you know, they're they're wrong, not us, and that's exactly, exactly. But I'd rather be us, yeah. I think. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I always say that, you always sort of weigh it up and think, yeah, I'd rather be me, more good. <laughs> Drop the Moab, I'd rather be me. <laughs> yeah, whoever whoever the JTAC was who called that in. Yeah. Probably, uh, maybe he should get like a, a Moab pin or something like that. Yeah, I wonder if he has yeah, some sort of that's... Uh, I wonder what he's doing now. <laughs> so, yes, it's a strange... Um, it's an interesting one. And just to end on, a friend of mine just left this Sunday. Uh, Matt Bennett, He's they're trekking the Gobi Desert, by the way. Only 1,400 miles. Oh, right, yeah. It's, On it's, foot. So, yeah, treat crazy. yourselves, guys. Yeah. I hope you guys have some water, man. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I, was, I was, yeah, there's um, there's three of them. So, hopefully, um, that'll be a success. It's all for charity. Obviously, veterans. So, it's a good um, awesome. a good thing. Yeah, cool. Yeah. But I think that's it. I think we've kind of, have we, have we missed anything? No, that's it. I think we've got it all. Yeah. That's just up to date for the week. Now, I'm sure between now and Monday, things will change. Yeah, hopefully we're not doing this podcast from our local respective um, bomb shelters. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> so, all right, so John, you you just um, no, you, you've just put a spell on us there, haven't you? Yeah, exactly. Next you said week, it. I'm going to be uh, Instagram living <laughs> from a bomb shelter. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I think we covered it. Uh, so yep. now. I will play the conversation that I had with uh, Jason Carl Fox, a former British Special Boat Service operator, and I hope you guys enjoy it. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. We have a special episode for you guys as I'm here in New York City with Foxy, and Foxy, some of you guys may know him already, and he is a former uh, British Royal Marine. And uh, he does a bunch of stuff now in the UK with uh, television and some other stuff. It's pretty cool. Fox, how's it going? Yeah, good, man. Thanks Thanks for having me on. Yeah, cool. It's, it's cool to get you on, finally. Um, <laughs> so, you know, you've had a long career in the Marines. Yeah. Uh, 20 years. Yeah, yeah. I did So I joined when I was 16. Um, sort of first 10 years I was in the Royal Marines. I went from a one unit to the other unit for, you know, basically in that 10-year period and didn't do an awful lot, didn't see an awful lot of action, to be honest. I um, did a lot of travelling around, a lot of exercises in the Mediterranean, the Far East, the States, uh, played a lot of sport, partied a little bit, 
And then what happened was I sort of, I enjoyed being a soldier. I just didn't enjoy some of the mundane um, admin type stuff, bits that went with being a soldier. So I wanted to continually do stuff that was essentially like rolling around in the mud and doing all that good stuff. Right. But I didn't want the, the sort of the other side of it. So I, I figured that, that, you know, going on special forces selection was the right thing to do. It was make or break. If I wasn't, if I, if I didn't make it, then I was going to then, you know, just get out. Just get out. So that was a little bit of a driving factor. So I, yeah, 26 years old, I did special forces selection, passed it and then joined the special boat service, which is essentially our, our version of team six. Right. So we, we work, we work quite closely with the team six guys in uh, lots of different deployments and also training. And yeah, and then I did 10 years with this special boat service and it was literally just as the world went crazy. Right, so, yeah. You know, we were deploying in all the places that everyone would think we'd be deploying. Right. So and so the British special operations apparatus is just slightly different from the US. So when you guys say special forces, you're referring mainly to the SBS and the SAS. Yeah, to tier one. Right. Really, and it? over here we have like... Hundred different tiers. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of yeah. There's, I mean, you guys have got a lot bigger military, right? And you've got, I think, you know, if if I'm if I think I've got it right, I'd say that the Royal Marines and the paratroopers in the UK are a tier two, and then you then you go on the selection process, and then you join tier one, which is um, obviously the SBS and the SAS. Right. And we, we, we work very closely together. You go on, you do the same course together. It's just at the end of it, you go to you split, two, you right. split and go to different places. But, but it, it wasn't always like that, though. Right? No, it's, you know the the two units was were formed in the Second World War right. by a bunch of rogues. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, they were they were the same. They were actually the same unit. It was just every now and again there would be a squadron that would go and do some maritime work, and they just called themselves the SBS. Mm, okay. But then at the end of the Second World War, everything seemed to get disbanded and then they reformed it not very long after. And what happened was the SAS was reformed or stayed with the army and, and then the Royal Marines inherited the SBS and they were hmm. completely separate. Okay. They went off in their different directions. And then I think it was, you know, there was a lot of animosity, a lot of bickering. Right. And then I think it was around the 90s, they decided that they needed to sort of bring everything in line. So... They formed one command. That structure lives in London and it commands both units. And they're both now really sort of on a par with each other with regard to how they're, they're structured. So you've got four squadrons in squadrons, each, yeah. in each, um, each organisation. And you sister up like the squadron that I was in. We, we, we pretty much did lots of work with, with our sister squadron in the SAS. Okay. Yeah, so I remember the the first time I'd, I'd ever heard about the SBS, I was reading about uh, uh, Major Dalton Fury. He was a, a Army Tier 1 guy. He passed away uh, recently from cancer. Okay. Um, he wrote a, He was the uh, ground commander for Tora Bora right, in uh, 2001. Yeah, yeah. And I remember reading the book, and he was in the book, he's like, yeah, and then we had a group of... Um, SBS commandos. And I'm like, who the fuck are these guys? <laughs> so I, I remember I, I picked up a book uh, by a former SBS guy. Uh, I think his pen name was like Duncan Falconer or yeah, something. Yeah. And and then I, I read about it and I, I was pretty intrigued by it because usually, at least up to that point, I'd only heard about the SAS. Mm -hmm. I guess they they have like the you know famous... Uh, yeah. But um, yeah, so, so you did 10 years in Special Forces... Um, yeah. 
obviously during a time where there was nonstop uh, yeah, it was, rotation. It was and, mad. It was. Uh, I mean, it was exciting times. I, I, I love. It. I mean, I still miss it. You know. Right. But um, yeah, it was. It was mental. It was. You know, I did multiple deployments away, predominantly. You know, Afghan. Uh, everything from counter narcotics to surveillance uh, strike. You know, going after some of the big hitters on the opposite side, and you know, and also was was involved in a, a reasonably high profile hostage rescue which happened out there. Um, and it was it, that. In fact, that that hostage rescue was at the. It was my last tour of Afghan. Actually, and okay. it was sort of the tour that was the. It was a defining moment, defining few months for me, that tour. You know, we deployed, within two days we went on this prolific hostage rescue, which was, it was a mental night. You know, there's a lot of lot of work behind the scenes that went into it, a lot of other people that were involved helping right. us, you know, find the guy. He, he was a New York Times reporter, actually. Got himself captured up in the north of the country, but it was actually on that night that... Um, I mean, it was crazy. We were we were getting shot at in the sky while we were flying in for you know a good six minutes. It was you know oh wow you could hear and feel rounds hitting the cabs. I could see the helo behind us, the, the cab you know the Chinook behind us. You know, getting shot at. You could see air burst RPG going off. I remember Ooh. sat there with a friend of mine, you know, one of the guys, and I thought I was holding my knee and hurting it, and I wasn't. I had hold of his, and he had hold of mine. <laughs> we had a crazy <laughs> moment, but. Um, yeah, that and you know, just willing the helicopter to land. I just wanted the helicopter to land, so I you know, at least right. had a little bit of control over my destiny. Right, right, yeah, yeah. And yeah, we landed, ran off the back of it, and into probably one of the. You know, it's a crazy firefight, crazy. And um, and I was, I was a senior, I was a senior guy by that stage. You know, I'd done multiple tours, seen seen that stuff before. But I remember running the first fifty meters, diving into a ditch, changing a magazine, and just. I remember the the emotion must have been like a split second. I've spoken about it before, but I actually was in that ditch and I didn't want to be where I was. I wanted to be. I can remember thinking I wanted to be a ten year old boy at home with my mum. Like, right. It was mad. I was like, Whoa. and it just kind of hit you. Like, yeah, yeah. And I sort of, I sort of, it, it, I registered the emotion. It was obviously fear. Right. And I just had, a, I basically had a word with myself, and I was like, all right, dude, you can't. <laughs> You're supposed to be an SF soldier for God's sake. Just get on with it. So. You know, it's like I said, it was a split second, maybe, but it was a, it was something that I will remember. It made me. I looked back on that moment a lot afterwards and was like, "What does that mean?" You know, right? You know, I was supposed to be a ball of fire, and you know, what what did that mean? But anyway, right. you know, that night, you know, we we were set, we were successful. We I mean we lost a guy that night. One of the guys got killed, but um, we made it back. We rescued the guy. He was repatriated. And it, it was a weird emotion, at, you know, flying off, flying away from that that location. I remember being absolutely exhausted, you know, laid on the back of the helicopter, covered in dirt. Everything. Right, yeah. Just... And, that's, and having these mixed emotions of, well, you know, we've just succeeded, but we've lost a guy, you know, am I supposed to be happy or am I supposed to be happy? Yeah. So, yeah, and then that was the beginning of, you know, six month tour and the tour just was it was it was hard hardcore. It was a the the, the operational tempo was was up there. It was one of the busiest tours I've done. We were getting into a lot of scraps, a lot of fights. Uh, we you know picking up a lot of casualties on the way as well yeah. on that tour. And I remember coming back and 
it must have been within like 15 hours so 15 hours from being on the ground in, in that place 15 hours later I'm walking down the high street at home shopping and I remember feeling a little bit detached this time and almost a little bit like whoa what's going on here and then it, yeah I mean that tour it had an impact on me I didn't realize at the time and then then I just felt like I, I was a senior by that you know fast forward year I'm a senior team leader within the squadron expecting or I should expect myself to be a ball of fire for the younger guys you know inspiring and leading and I was having to dig deep just to motivate myself and I didn't think that this was fair so I sort of presented myself as a person to uh, the sick bay informally I wanted it off the record and said look there's something going on I need to address it I want to get my I basically felt like I'd lost my military mojo I wanted it back you know so I sort of I thought that there'd, there'd be something that they could do square it away and I'll go back to work and it didn't it didn't quite work out like that there was a a mentality of one size fits all with regards to therapy mm. uh, I didn't really engage with the person that was delivering that to me they were getting frustrated I was getting frustrated and it, it just didn't seem to work out I was then diagnosed with PTSD and chronic burnout and I was told that you know the one thing that's going to fix me is to leave the military and I, I was like no way man you know this is this is my world I love it and fought it for a little bit and then it, it just seemed it, nothing was getting better and I, was, I sort of succumbed to the that decision really and I was like well maybe that is what I need so I you know I got medically discharged after 20 years service and the next thing you know you know the following day after my last day on in the military I wake up and lo and behold I don't feel any different in fact I feel worse because you know I've lost my identity I, I wasn't part of a, of a, a group of guys that I just you know loved and believed in and what have you and the, the security bubble of that sort of had a bigger impact on me so I, I did a, probably a good two years of finding out who I was you know su thinking about suicide you know not seeing what my what my worth was on this on this planet and sort of had a, had a struggle fortunately nothing you know major happened I, I, I just sort of what actually happened was I became I was honest with myself I, I realized that I needed to be honest with myself needed to understand who I was I wasn't someone that was going to sit behind a desk that just wasn't me so then right. I just got out there left left the job that I had when I first left the military and started to find myself again and that was that's you know I ended up doing I, I knew that I needed a focus and I'll always need a focus I'll need to remain busy and I think one of the things that saved me big time was um, the planning of a row across the Atlantic and then actually executing it and doing it and, nice. and yeah <laughs> yeah well you know it's, it's a lot of guys from what I understand like a lot of guys will be going through stuff mm. and they'll hide it because if they bring it to someone's attention then they'll get forced yeah. out or something and yeah. and you would think that things should be done or set up in such a way that the environment would be welcoming to a guy who's saying look I'm, I'm going through something mm. you know I need to figure it out can you help me mm. and then you figure it out and then you go back right back in or whatever right but uh, from what I know is a lot of guys they'll they'll continue on with their issues and they'll keep it to themselves because of that you know yeah. and it's 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 it kind of sucks because if you if you do if you take the route that you took and you say hey look you know something's wrong I I, I need to get, I need help mm. then you get forced out 
But then if you don't, you continue to go on deployments and, and go through your training cycles and, and you're living with this problem and it could potentially get worse. Yeah. So it's like a double-edged sword, mm. you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I look at myself and I think I'm a bad example, to be honest, because of what happened. And it was, it was it was you know, I was partly to blame and I think the system was partly to blame at the time. You know, it was, it, it was new-ish. Right. They, the management wasn't great. I wasn't being very honest with myself. Um, I was probably, I was just tired from a lot of deployments. What actually happened was I had another, I had another six month deployment looming. It was like we, we were doing the build up to to get ready to go away again. I remember it being a black cloud, and I was just, like, I was like, I'm normally raring, you know, keen getting ready to go. I just was. I just wasn't looking forward to it. That's what made me sort of then, you know, go on. Apart from the way I was feeling, but also this this looming black crowd, this next six month tour. But yeah, I look at myself as a bit of a bad example because there are guys I know that that after me had a, ended up presenting themselves, getting fixed, and then going back into okay. being operational. So it's it's getting better. Okay. But right. I mean, the, I mean, the one reason what I do now is is talk about it all the time to try and break the stigma because, you know, guys need to talk about if if they've got stuff going on, get it get it spoken about. Talk to the right people. Don't be disheartened when the first person you meet is not the right person. That's just the way it goes. You you know almost be excited and have fun just meeting new people before you find the one that does help you out or that works for you. Try and put a positive spin on on things, which is hard, but right, right. But it's you know it's that's the one thing that's going to actually help fix whatever it is that's going on. Yeah, and you know it's it's every war has had they've had uh, you know PTSD soldiers have had it mm. for us every war in recorded history but they had different names for it like in World War II I think in America they called it shell shock yes yeah. uh, the Civil War they called it uh, soldiers heart I think so and and each war had it's different uh, it affected the soldiers differently because like you said you know one moment you're in Afghanistan um you know, running a high op tempo. And then the next minute you're back home in a supermarket. Mm. And it kind of like, I think that so that sudden switch yeah. has a certain effect, yeah, you definitely. know, and then the guys in world war two, they were on a deployment for three years straight, you know, like, mm. like, so every war has, it's like certain things that affect the soldiers in a particular way, you know? It's, yeah, it's definitely the case. It's like, it depends on the dynamics. And it apparently I read somewhere that the American civil war, there was a lot of, you know, not that it's recorded properly, but you know, mental health issues yeah. with soldiers because essentially they're they're fighting their own countrymen, right? You know, which which can only be not a good thing, you know, right? And it has that sort of impact. And then obviously with us, we're doing a lot of high tempo work in a faraway land, and then the modern age, we can be back home and within within, within hours, right. and and you you're trying to readjust. There's you know it's. There's a lot to be said for having an adjustment period, you know, yeah. and, and allowing yourself to sort of reflect because that's what you do as a human being. You look back and you look reflect on things. Right. And for me, it was in a negative way for a long time, and I needed to sort of become positive again. But yeah, I mean, each war has, you know, that the the dynamics that you see within the battlefield, no matter what year it's been or what decade or century, it has an effect on. It's a, it's a stressful situation. Yeah, and um, there was a um, an interview done by a guy who's a, a Delta guy here in mm. the states, 
um, I don't know, he had a, a bunch of deployments to Iraq, a couple to Afghanistan, I think. And he was, he's, he's very open and honest about his, his past struggles. Um, and what he was saying was that it got to a, it was so bad for him, the, the being in a war zone and then being home, you know, mm-hmm. how, however many hours that he felt more comfortable, uh, being deployed yeah. than he did at home. And I remember <laughs> yeah. when, when he said that, that blew my mind completely. And I was like, all right, th- this is something that we have to figure out yeah. as a society, you know? Mm. I, yeah, man, that's, that's so true. I, I sort of liken it to um, real life is harder than being deployed. Mm. Like when I, I used to talk about it with my mates and it was like, you deploy... And life is black and white, you know, you've got a job to do. There's a bunch of dudes that are trying to kill you and vice versa. Yeah, that's quite stressful, but you can, you, you can almost use it as a getaway. And from, you know, the everyday trials and tribulations of life, paying the bills, your car breaks down, you're having an argument with your, with your partner and, you know, all those other little bits and pieces, your kids get sick, you know, there's lots of different things that play into it where you deploy and it's just yeah that's all gone yeah, 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 yeah it's yeah. gone and you come back to it obviously that's where it all goes a bit wrong again but it was a lot easier I remember I remember listening to a, a TED talk by a dude called Sebastian Younger I think oh yeah yeah I know yeah, yeah he, he, he he broached the subject of why the soldiers miss war and, and it, it is weird we shouldn't miss it but you do and, and then he, he summarises it at the end with the fact that it's about brotherhood it's about having a place, belonging, and identity, and those people give it to you by being around you. And and it go, it's the same with anything. You know, it can be you could be in a top end business as a CEO with a good board of people around you, and you love that. You love that belonging. Right. NYPD, exactly the same. The fire department. You know, anywhere. Sportsmen. You know. Yeah. Football players that are part of a squad. All of it. You know, it gives you your identity. And then when that finishes and it's over, you crave it again. You. Crave you know what what it is that you were going through so yeah it's mad it's mad trying to understand what we are as people yeah well it it takes time and i mm. think like during the world war two days here in the states like if you had shell shock they just told you to like suck it up you know yeah. and it's like you know get mm. on with it and they didn't really try and figure it out mm. and then um in korea i'm sure they experienced it as well and then vietnam uh, those guys got a pretty raw deal because they. So I had a guy on the podcast, a friend of mine. He was a, a Green Beret in Vietnam. Yeah, and he was he did his first tour before '68, and his second tour was in uh, MACV Sog. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Yeah, like, yeah, heard, yeah. Special reconnaissance unit, mm. and it was during his second tour was when public opinion changed about the war and mm. people were like spitting on soldiers or whatever, mm. and. One thing that people don't talk about too much here in the States is that, you know, you hear the number of 22 veterans committing suicide yeah. a day, but what they don't really talk, that, that number is actually higher because mm. um, not all, uh, and not all recorded. Are yeah, they? right. They don't, all the stats aren't in from all the different VAs and stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, one thing that they don't talk about either is that the majority of those 22 are actually Vietnam veterans. Mm. It, it's, it's more Vietnam guys who commit suicide than GWAT veterans. And, um, one of the things that, so I have a few like Mac V saw guys I'm friends with on Facebook and, you know, they, they post stuff and these two guys were having a conversation. They were teammates in Vietnam. And what they were both saying was 
that for them, it got worse as they got older. Yeah. So like they, you, because it was like, you didn't talk about Vietnam. Like the, my friend, uh, Mike Stahl, he's the one who comes on the podcast here and there. He had a, uh, I think a first cousin or, or brother-in-law who served in Vietnam in the infantry unit. And he said they never had one conversation about Vietnam. Like, can you imagine that? You know, like you, different units, but you know, you go to Afghanistan, someone close to you goes to Afghanistan, you guys spend time together and you never talk about it at all. And I think that had like some, a, a negative effect yeah. on that entire generation. You know, it's, it's weird how the, you know, attitudes drive how people deal with stuff. And obviously the Vietnam war was something that I think, I mean, I don't know too much about it, but my my understanding is that that war finished and no one wanted to talk about it. You know, yeah, yeah, it was literally forget about that. That's yeah. something we don't want to broach. And then off the back end of that, you've got a bunch of a lot of guys that were out there that were fighting that need to talk about it. You know, yeah, absolutely, to get it out there. And it's the same yeah. with it for the UK. They got in, you know, the bits that I can remember that, you know, soldiers were getting involved in Northern Ireland and the Falklands. Yeah. And, and again, it was still the old school mentality of you need to suck it up, put up. And which, yeah, I mean, it worked. It didn't work, didn't work, obviously, but that's what the attitude was back in the day. But I think what's changing it is, you know, the world itself, technology, you know, it's a smaller place. People are right. more aware of their emotions. You've got mm. kids that have way brainier than when I was a kid yeah. and they're like questioning they're like hang on a minute if I join the military I might get this thing called PTSD so actually if you're not going to address it I ain't doing that you know right but because you want to be taken care of yeah, if you're yeah. going to serve because, you know, right? because nowadays you know youth young young people today are way more aware and they want to know everything about everything so you need to address it nowadays you know and times have changed you can't just suck it up you need to sort it out talk about it Look at how we can help fix guys and girls. You know, it affects everyone. And when we do that, and we break down the stigma of what mental health is, you know, from what you know, it, it can be from anything. But we're obviously talking combat. That that stigma needs to be broken down, so blokes know that it's all right to fucking, to come and talk, and also then it's all right to start moving forward and fixing. Because to be honest, if you get through the back end of it, I think it can make you a stronger person. Anyway. Oh yeah, because yeah, you understand yourself. I think. Yeah, and it's um actually I I read a book about the Falklands War, and I think more veterans who survived it committed suicide yeah. than more guys who were killed in actual combat. There's there's a, there's a big fallout from the Falklands. You know, it was a tough, a short, sharp war, but it was it was really tough, hard, yeah. hard physically and mentally. And those guys, there's a lot of guys that are suffering that need to just you know have the confidence to come forward and try and sort of fix it. People, there are guys that are doing it, but I'm sure there's still a lot that haven't really made that made that move, and it's a shame because yeah, it will help them out big time. Well, I think I think we are making progress as a society, yeah, um, in, yeah, in dealing with it because there, are, you know, after uh, you know, 16 years of war, obviously there's more more and more guys are coming home and getting out of the military mm -hmm. in the UK, in the US, and elsewhere, and so then you have more guys who are with the connectivity of today, you know, on Instagram, on Facebook, and, mm -hmm. and you can kind of get a, for the first time, you can get like a a glimpse of what it's like for, for them, you know? Mm -hmm. So you, you know, you see posts or guys are doing interviews and, and they talk about these things where, whereas in the past you would never hear about this, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, I, I think we're making progress and, and hopefully, you know, we can kind of figure it out a little bit more. Yeah. So, um, 
So when you got out, you 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 had you know you kind of went through your struggles for a little bit, and then you picked mm-hmm. yourself up. You said uh, yeah. doing the rowing. Can we talk about some of that rowing? I know you guys. Yeah. you guys set a world record or something like that. Yeah, we. So there was five of us. Uh, we were, we called ourselves Team Essence. That's a stupid <laughs> name, but anyway. Uh, yeah, we sort of came up with this. There's one guy, Matt, he, he sort of funded it. It was his brainchild, to be honest. And we were going to do the Talisker Atlantic Challenge, which is a race that they do. Hmm. Because there was five of us, we weren't allowed to enter that. So we were like, well, we've got a bone. We've got the desire and drive to do something. So what are we going to do next? You know, we can't get involved in the race. So we decided to do something a little bit crazier and we basically set off and rowed from Portugal and we finished in Venezuela so we were the first team to row mainland Europe to mainland South America wow uh, 50 days 10 hours 36 minutes it was um, wow it's crazy. <laughs> it was long man it was long and hard and been pretty boring well first three weeks weren't we were caught in storms we were getting absolutely battered we capsized three four times Ooh. we were losing kit there was yeah it was emotional. And then we sort of made it, we sort of went past the Canary Islands in between the Canary Islands and the West Coast of Africa, where we thought, I was like, ah, it's Western Sahara, it's going to be really hot. And yeah. Like, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> there was some freak weather system would come in and was hanging around for a bit. So <laughs> we made it down. We, I think we got to about 90 miles north of Cape Verde. And then we did, essentially, we turned right and then just pegged it across the the uh, the Atlantic. Once we actually got into the Atlantic, and we, cause we were down lower than into the tropics, it was like warm weather. Sea was, you know, clear blue. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah, it was cool. We saw a bit of wildlife. And then literally, just as we were getting, we sort of rode along the north coast of Trinidad. But just before we got into Trinidad, this, the weather picked up again, and it whipped mm. us around for a little bit. And then plain sailing, and we sort of made hit land. I think it was around. It was light. It was. Late, it was dark, uh, which was a bonus because we f- forgot when we were planning that where we were heading to is actually quite a dodgy area. Mm. They've got um, drug drug runners, gun runners. Oh, so you guys kind of came in at the right time. We, were like, <laughs> we came in under darkness. It was quite apt. It was like another special boat service operation. <laughs> Found a little beach, sort of got off, marked it on the GPS, filmed a little bit on the phones. Everyone was falling over because we hadn't walked for 50 days. So we, wow. Sort of, yeah. Was, so you guys just stayed like in the boat, literally just rowing? Yeah, we just rowed nonstop. We did two hours on, two hours off wow. for 50 days. So in any one sitting, you'd get an hour and 45 minutes sleep most, and then you'd be up again straight into another two hours. Oh, wow. Away. So it wasn't like, it was never like any no. type of normal sleeping schedule? No, no. no, no um, yeah, we just rowed the whole way because we wanted to get it. We wanted to do it in less than 52 days. Hmm. Um, and we, yeah, we, we went for it. It was tiring. You get you you get used to it. The body is quite quick. It became conditioned to the lack of sleep. The first few weeks, obviously, I can remember looking back at like small little videos we did, and I'm slurring my words, and yeah. we didn't have any booze. You know, it was, just, it was just too tired. <laughs> but you sort of get used to it, and you know, yeah, we we did it in the end. We raised we we did it for a children's charity back home in the UK. We raised. I can't even remember what the final figures are, but it's way over 100K, 100,000. Oh, wow, so, nice. Yeah, it was good. It was a good thing. It was hard, tough, but I'm, yeah, glad I did it. And were all the guys uh, ex-Marines? There was two, there was a guy called Aldo Kane, very close to paint mine, and Ross Johnson. They're two ex-Marines. Known those guys a while. And then there was Matt, who owns his own kids' care homes. He used to be a broker. Okay. He was ex-Royal Air Force. 
for a very, for a bit, and then a guy called Ollie Bailey, who's uh, still a, still is a broker, he's a man mountain, he's like six right. foot six foot something or other, yeah. bigger than me, a lot bigger than me, but <laughs> yeah, he he is a strong, yeah, all good guys, you know, and we sort of we didn't really fall out, which you know, there was a little bit of bickering here and there, but right, right. to be expected when you're living on a boat that's eight, yeah, yeah, eight point yeah. five meters long and there's five of you. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's that's crazy stuff, man. Um, so so after you got you did the rowing and then uh, you got into uh, television. Yeah, yeah, I got the TV stuff came a bit before the row. Okay, I'd already dis- we were already planning the row, but what happened was I ended up going. I had I I got I got back into security a little bit, and I ended up getting given a job to look after um, a, a, a production crew out in. They were they were operating out in and around Madagascar, and it was mm. they were doing a show for the for the History Channel, and um, I was basically the underwater cameraman's dive buddy. So I was just, we were living in a resort on this small little desert island, and we were basically filming these underwater. I suppose you'd call them underwater archaeologists. Um, they were diving on old pirate shipwrecks looking for treasure, looking oh, for nice. antiquities and artifacts. Oh, that's and, cool. So yeah. we were yeah we were doing that and. We were sort of. We ended up finding um, the biggest bar of pirate silver ever. It was like oh, wow. Captain Kidd's lost treasure, and oh really? That happened while we were out there. So oh shit. That uh, yeah, long and then that was happening also, sort of at the same time that basically the Channel Four, which is a network back home in the UK, had this idea through the production company, which was called Minnow, had this idea to sort of come up with this TV show, you know, about running. 30 civilians through special forces selection mm. and they were like well where do you find these ex special forces guys and someone was like well, there's this dude I think you, you may I know this bloke phone him up you know and then there was like a weird convoluted way of going about it and I get yeah. a phone call with someone saying do you want to be it basically long story short do you want to be on TV and I was like oh, yeah okay yeah. <laughs> I need to <laughs> pay the bills yeah of course I do <laughs> but it turned out yeah it did well we got a second season we've got a third season which we, which we shoot at the end towards the end of this year don't so, know where that's going to be yet okay right right um, um, so it's probably somewhere season hot. three would be what's, it, what's going to be filmed yeah, we're going to film that's that's you know that's the next that's what's going to be happening this year I've got I've got my own I've got something coming up this year that I start um, in a month's time. So okay. I can't really talk about it too much, but yeah, right. it's going to be. There's another project that hopefully you'll get to see some stuff that I do, which would be nice. Be crazy stuff again. <laughs> I'm always trying to do something that's going to end up killing me, but there you go. And it, it was in um, filming for the the show that you met uh, Chantal Taylor. Right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so she, on the first season, she was uh, she was a medic on that and. Yeah, she was. Uh, she was on. Was she on? I think she had a bit of on the screen. But yeah, she, I mean, cool, cool, cool person. Yeah, um, hit it off with her big time. Had a laugh, and we we stay in touch. Obviously, yeah. I wear her t shirts every now and again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she she wanted me to call her the best medic in the world on this on the podcast. Oh right, <laughs> so, yeah, 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 yeah. She's she's a modest, modest, <laughs> modest person. <laughs> um. Yeah. So. And then you guys are also doing like you have like a fitness uh, program going on or kind of movement. Yeah, we got so there's um, me and me and Ollie, who's a guy that's on the on the on the show SAS. Uh, we got we got a company called Breakpoint. We, it predominantly does um, 
uh, it started off we started off doing corporate team building stuff that's geared around the sf ethos you know um mm. how you get stuff done you know determination not setting yourself limits you know going beyond limits right. and, and pushing the boundaries right. Uh, and it sort of morphs into lots of other things. We, we do a little bit of fitness. We do a bit of sort of more mindfulness and, you know, positivity around, you know, motivating yourself, if anything. Okay, know. so it's a lot of like mindset stuff. Yeah, yeah, you know, you know, get out of your bed in the morning, get right, to the right. gym, that sort of thing. But yeah, it's a lot of that and it, it, it's growing and developing. Ollie's, a, Ollie's a, a, a real hardworking guy and drives that big time. But uh, yeah, there's that. And then I've also got with... Um, a guy called Jamie Sanderson, who's an ex-War Marine commando sniper. He's a good friend of mine. He actually left the uh, the military for the same reasons I did at the same oh, sort of time. We got together, moaned a little bit about the system, you know, yeah. as boys and men do. Right. And then we're like, well, instead of moaning, why don't we set up an organisation? So we set up an organisation called Rock to Recovery. And essentially what that's for doing, we didn't know what it was going to do in the first place, but... What we do now is we've got a few few coaches and they, they go around and intervene with guys that have got serious issues. You know, they've, they've stopped suicides and what have you. Okay. Then they talk to the guys, you know, give them some techniques to help them get through the difficult times. And then what we do then is we try to get the guys to focus on something so they look for their rock. Uh, and it can be anything from rowing an ocean to climbing a mountain to learning to play music to, learn, you know, poetry, photography anything along those sort of lines right and that's rock to recovery yeah so that's the other organization that's and and the concept would be that that one thing that you find helps you kind of get over the hump and and then you yeah keep and and it, we don't want it to be like a short sharp yeah go and climb a mountain that's it done and then at the end of it everyone's like oh, now i still feel you know right, right. it's more about you know look for something have either is it whether it's a job or a hobby once you've got it you know focus on it you know make that be your passion don't just let it be a you know, flash in the pan, right. one hit. Just yeah. make sure you've got something that, that that's going to be there. You know, basically fill the gap for us, or for, for anyone. You know, fills a gap of what's been left. You know, so it, whether you're a football player that now retired, a rugby player, military guy, you know, sort yourself out and then find another another focus, another passion. Right, something to kind of drive on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So in the I meant to ask you this earlier, but so in the special boat service, I know like here in the States and some of the soft units, guys have specific roles that they play like, like specifically like in an A-team, a Green Beret A-team, each guy has like a specific role. One guy's a medic, the other guy's a communications guy. Is this similar like that or you guys, everyone kind of goes through a bunch of different training? Um, yeah, they normally, it is obviously, yeah, in theory, that's how it they want it to be you've got a guy who's a demolitionist you've got a guy who's a medic you got, right. got you know but you do you sort of there's guys at double hat as well you get sent on lots of different courses and so you can be a dems guy you get some guys that are dems and medics and mm. then you've got the jtax so the guys that call in the fast air and, right. and that sort of thing um yeah i mean the list's endless i i i, would, I ended up doing a dog handling course so i took I had a dog for a bit. Okay, nice. Um, yeah, an SF dog. He was um, cool, cool, yeah. cool animal. Hard work, right, right. <laughs> Looking after him, but yeah. So I obviously for for a period of time I was a specialist in the in the with the dog. Okay. Um, he was used for many things from detection, so explosive weapons, uh, to protection. So obviously he he could be used as an attack dog as well. Right. Yeah, I know. Um, 
I, at least I know here in the States, there was a guy I had on the podcast who was a, a Green Beret and a dog handler. Yeah. And uh, we kind of went into that, like, you know, how they select dogs and, mm-hmm. and the whole process. And it seems like those dogs are, like, really the, the top of the top in terms yeah. of what they're capable of. Yeah, they're, they're, I mean, they're mad. I'm sure, I'm, the, I'm sure the dog program now in the States and the UK is way, way above where I was. We, right. we, we were, for us, we were in our infancy. We were actually learning an awful lot from the Americans. So we'd go and see the Team Six guys and people like that. And we, we had an American trainer came, came and helped us, you know, understand what it was that we needed to do to get the best out of the animals. Because okay. I think their program had been going years, A couple before, of years yeah. before we sort of kicked into realizing that it was the way forward. Right. But they're, they're, they're a massive force multiplier. They save lives as well. Basically. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it was an amazing job. Like I said, it was quite hard work, time intensive, but it was, yeah, satisfying. Right. So some of the, and it's, it's kind of interesting, I, I'm not sure how many people are aware of this, but a lot of the American special operations, uh, some of their unit structure and even like the green berets the the beret I, I believe was came from the royal marines if i'm not mistaken oh really i didn't know this yeah mm. and um it, it wasn't until i think uh they originally wanted the the beret as to kind of separate themselves from the rest of the army mm. and they got denied and it wasn't until president kennedy like a year or two before he was assassinated uh they'd done a demonstration for him in uh, north carolina and then one of the guys just asked him and he said, yeah, you guys can have it. But they originally, they didn't want to do it because it was too European looking. So, oh, right. yeah. yeah, so uh, some of the headgear came there. And then obviously with the, um, the tier one units uh, structured uh, yeah, after kind of where you guys said. It's a European thing, isn't it, really? Yeah, yeah. yeah they're, they're weird. I don't. Obviously, when you when I was in, I was like, yeah, you get to wear a green beret. And now I look back on it and I'm like, beret? Who picked a beret? Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah right. Of all headgear, right? Head yeah. Baseball cap, man. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's mad. I didn't realize that there was a. Li- I didn't realize that link between the green. Yeah, and yeah. Oh, cool. And um, yeah, and then obviously with uh, SAS and Delta, uh, you know, the SAS, the, the founding officer of Delta did a tour with the SAS, and mm-hmm. then he came back and said, "We need one of these units here." And yeah, it's kind of how they st- stood up. All right. Um, so for so for anyone listening who would be interested in like, we have a lot of younger people who listen who are you know, joining the military or considering it. Um, and then obviously there's a lot of people who's focused on joining special ops. Mm. Um, any tips for anybody in the UK who wants to go to special ops? Well? Yeah. Um, basically focus on that end goal. Uh, have it in the back of your mind. Always have that goal there. You always need a goal in life anyway. Right. Uh, but then, and then, and then push it to the back of the mind. Never forget it, but just keep it there and then deal with every second minute hour day week as it as it presents itself to you and live within your little box and back things away embrace things and just keep plodding on and don't be afraid about you know tripping up every now and again it happens to all of us and it's just what makes you a better person so don't be afraid to fail just remember the end goal right (laughs) that's good All right, man. Well, I just want to thank you for uh, doing this. Um, no, man. Thanks very much. It's been awesome. Yeah, it's awesome. And this is actually the first time I've done an interview in person. Oh, right. So it's cool, oh, yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Quality. Cheers. Yeah, yeah. Cheers, man. All right. Thanks. It was a good time hanging out with Foxy uh, here in New York and, uh, you know, getting to talk about 
some of his past experiences and how he was able to overcome and surmount some of his struggles that included PTSD and the separation from a job that he worked for 20 years. And, um, you know, he's a hardworking guy. He's always working. So just look out for some of the stuff he's got coming up on uh, television. And if, if anybody wants to check Foxy out, uh, he's got an Instagram link and a Twitter on Instagram. It's Jason underscore call underscore Fox on Twitter. It's Jason Fox 1976. Uh, with that, we'll close out this podcast. My website is globalrecon.net. My Facebook account is FB Recon. Follow me on Facebook. My Instagram account is IG Recon. The second account I have on Instagram is Black Ops Matter. Uh, there's a third account. It's uh, my friend Chantel Taylor's military account, but I'm also on there at times. It's called Mission Underscore Critical. Be sure to follow there. Um, we're also on Twitter, IG Recon. I'm on LinkedIn, just search Global Recon. Be sure to subscribe, download, and share these episodes with your friends and family. Uh, if anyone has any questions, comments, or suggestions for a guest who you think would be a good fit on the podcast, just send an email to podcast at globalrecon.net. And, um, yeah, we can do some work. So that's it for this week's podcast. Uh, we got a good couple episodes for you guys uh, lined up and we'll see you next week. Peace.